Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help me out by clicking the like or subscribe button and if you want to donate you can do so clicking the tip jar link below. I've also included a link to open a Tastyworks account in case you're looking for a new broker and you want to help the show that way. Tastyworks provides you with a lot of options. You can do options trading, you can do short selling, you can do futures trading and for that reason I like them as a broker so if you're looking to switch it up uh, use my link in the description below for that. So with that, I'm glad to be back, and again, appreciate everybody's support, all the emails I've been getting, lots of subscribers. We hit 700 this week, so I appreciate all of that, and welcome to all the new people that are checking out the show. So this week, we're going to talk about some updates from ASCO 2020, and then I'm going to focus on iAvance, as well as another company called Carriofarm. So we're doing a little bit of a cancer focus on the show with this episode and last episode. And yeah, it should be a should be a pretty good show. So I hope you're all keeping safe, and uh, everything's going well for everyone. I know the the U.S. in particular has been dealing with a lot right now. I'm not going to get too much into that, but I'm going to touch on it for the sake of the market. But with that, let's get right into it. So the first thing I want to talk about is some news from ASCO, and one company in particular that I hadn't mentioned, but they seem to be one of the bigger winners is Adapt Immune Therapeutics, ticker symbol ADAP. And they showed phase one trial data of ADP A2M4, where 50% of patients with synovial sarcoma exhibited partial responses. Now, they also showed some data in, I believe, lung cancer, neck and head cancer, and then also with melanoma. And a lot of these patients had responses. So I think it's not only due to the synovial sarcoma data, but for a lot of solid tumors, they show that their molecule is able to lead to some kind of response. And the shares traded wildly high on this news, up 128%, and then they did an offering. And as I brought this kind of stuff up before in the past, seeing positive solid tumor data is huge because the market is gigantic. I'm going to talk about this a bit later, but in lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, the patient population is like 280,000 patients per year. So when you're thinking about companies that are likely to see big increases in stock, you know, are they looking at solid tumors? That's a big thing that you can ask yourself. And if they're going to see some positive data in that, then maybe you should think about how you want to play it. So good to see that from them. Might uh, might do a deeper dive in the future. But another company I wanted to touch on is Allergene Therapeutics. And specifically, they are a company that is doing an off-the-shelf cell therapy. And the data that they showed is in it, their off-the-shelf CAR-T therapy. So ALO501 and they were looking in relapsed or refractory non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and the two specific subsets of that was DLBCL as well as FL. And for all of you who've been watching my show, you'll know that as of last week, you understand clearly that DLBCL is an aggressive form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, whereas FL, or follicular lymphoma, is more of a slow-growing one, or an indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So in both of these forms, which is better than just seeing it in, say, the indolent version, they saw an overall response rate of 63%, and 37% were complete responders. And I believe this is in line with traditional CAR-T therapy, and I'll explain in a second what the off-the-shelf part means. And just before I go into that, they also saw that around 32% of patients saw cytokine release syndrome, which is also, I think, in line with some previous CAR-T therapies. So... The benefit here really, and CAR-T's been approved for a few years now and it's seen a lot of success, but 
those therapies are an autologous cell therapy, so they need to get the patient, take the blood from the patient, isolate the cells, edit the cells, and then infuse them back into the patient. And it's a pretty intensive process from a time perspective as well as from a resource perspective. What Allergene and other companies also are trying to do with their off-the-shelf therapy is not require the patient samples to process and edit. They want to have just a cell therapy ready to go where they can just thaw it and then infuse the patient. And in this way, it's going to be less expensive for the company and it's going to take less time because the patient will present themselves with the symptoms and then they can just get that infusion. They don't need to get the blood drawn and the cells processed in that way. So there's a few advantages to that process which Allergene is, is taking advantage of and they're also seeing efficacy in their version of this treatment too. So that's uh, good to see and I might go deeper into all of the off-the-shelf companies because there's a few of them now and they all have some intricacies about them that make them advantageous or not for investment. Another company that provided an update was Marker Therapeutics, and I don't have much for them because it was pretty much in line with what the abstract said and also what we saw last year. So I did a bit of a deeper dive on Marker Therapeutics, so check out my previous video, but they showed that they had one complete responder in their multi-TAA therapy treated in combination with first-line anti-PD-1 therapy. So the real trouble with this is it's difficult for us to separate the effects of the multi-TAA therapy with the anti-PD-1 therapy. And this is on pancreatic cancer, by the way. So for us, it's tough to know. And given that, we're kind of left not knowing whether or not the multi-TAA therapy itself is what contributed to the benefit that we saw. Other than that, Marker has some other hurdles they need to take care of this year, which is to overcome the clinical hold that the FDA has put on them with regards to third-party supplied material. And they've explained, I explained this in the last video, that because of the COVID situation, their suppliers have not been totally available to provide that material. Uh, so for them, it's gonna, we're going to need to wait and see some safety data before they can move on in their AML studies. So for that reason, I sold my position and I'm going to be waiting, putting them on the back burner and maybe we'll revisit them in early 2021 and we'll see what happens then. Another company we were looking forward to seeing updates with ASCO was Amgen, specifically related to their KRAS inhibitor, AMG510. And the data was pretty much in line with the abstract, so there was no new surprise based off of the presentation of the poster. So just to reiterate that data, in colorectal cancer, phase one, they saw an overall response rate of 12% and a disease control rate of 80%. And then in non-small cell lung cancer, solid tumors, they saw an overall response rate of 13.6 and a disease control rate of 73%. And this is of observable patients. So it's still kind of early. And uh, you know I look forward to seeing the, the follow-up data because I think if they can make a real impact here, Finally, there's going to be a nice KRAS drug approved that's going to make an impact on solid tumors. The last company I want to touch on in regards to ASCO is Trillium Therapeutics, and they specifically made an update with their 622 compound. So they have the 661, and I believe that's what the number is, and 622. It's still an anti-CD47 molecule, but the antibody chain is different on each one. And they're moving both of them through clinical trials. And with 622, we saw that they're ongoing with the dose escalation. They're at 8 milligrams per kilogram now. And we didn't really get any surprises with the actual presentation as compared to the abstract that was released earlier in the year. 
and they mention here that the preliminary data indicate dose-dependent increases in both drug exposure as well as target engagement with receptor occupancy levels above 60% at doses of 2 mg per kilogram measured immediately after and at 24 hours after infusion. So, like I said, my take here is that the likelihood that Trillium is going to see more efficacy is higher because at 2 mg per kilogram they're getting 60% receptor occupancy which means that if they increase the dose amount, they're likely to see more receptor occupancy and likely to lead to more efficacious outcomes for patients. I mentioned this last time, uh, but just to reiterate that. So the other thing is that the responses that they've seen is that in two heavily pretreated DLBCL patients, one achieved a partial response at week eight and a complete response at week 36, and a second patient received a partial response at week eight. So this is a complete response that we're seeing in 622, and we've also seen a complete response in 661. So they're the only anti-CD47 company that's seen a complete response in both of their molecules on a monotherapy. And as we know, a lot of people are comparing Trillium to the company 47, which was recently acquired for, I don't know, I think it was like five or six billion dollars. And that company saw a relatively mild overall response rate with no complete responders. So this is why there's a lot of excitement around Trillium. Uh, I'm holding a, a decent position right now, and I'm waiting to see what their mid-2020 readout or their update is going to be on their 661 product, because that one is a little bit further along in the dose escalation, and I'm looking forward to seeing the data. All right, so with that, let's move on to Iovance Biotherapeutics, and they are a company that I covered in August of 2019. So go and check out that past video. Uh, I bought a small position and I've since sold it, but kind of thinking about whether or not I should re-enter. But basically what I plan on doing here is comparing what I talked about in 2019 to where we are now in terms of data and where the company is at. So Iovance is commercializing a cell therapy known as tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. And without getting into too much of the details, basically what the company is doing is they're taking a sample of a patient's tumor isolating the lymphocytes that are in that tumor, processing them in their unique way, treating them with IL-2 or doing whatever to activate them, and then infuse them back into the patient. And what they've seen and what researchers have seen since 1988, which is what I'm showing here on the screen, there's been a significant improvement in patients, especially those that have metastatic melanoma. So Iovance has since commercialized this therapy in uh, a number of cohorts and they're seeking approval in a number of different indications. So at August of 2019 they were trading at around 21 bucks a share giving them a market cap of 2.6 billion dollars and they had a net cash on hand of around 377 million dollars. Now since then as of today they've done an offering, they've released some more data, they're trading at 31 bucks a share giving them a market cap of around 4.5 billion dollars. So the company's almost doubled in their market cap and they have a net cash of around $800 million. And that includes kind of the remaining cash that they've spent since August, as well as an offering that they did in the last little while, trying to boost up their cash reserves so they can commercialize this therapy further. So I think the proceeds are only around $550 million, but I put here 604 just as an estimate, but that final number, we'll see an update at the Q2 earnings report for details on that. I think a lot of people were disappointed in seeing this offering. Earlier in the year, we heard that there were rumors around iAvance talking about how they were looking for a buyer or that they were going to be sold. And, 
you know, I've always been kind of hesitant to play companies based off of M&A news. I decided to sell iAvance only because I thought that this rumor might fall apart and the stock would fall uh, given that news. So for me, it wasn't worth holding with the potential that they're going to get bought out. But in that instance, I did lose out on some upside because I think the stock hit like 40 and change at some point after one of its data releases. So I missed out on that upside, but I did sell with the expectation that a buyout rumor might not happen. And as of now, it looks like it's not going to happen because usually if the company's going to raise money, to this degree, it was a huge offering. They are planning on commercializing the therapy themselves. And I think iVance is fully able to do that. It's just going to take a lot of resources. And what we're seeing now is that their quarterly spend has increased pretty substantially. And what we're seeing is that in Q1 of 2020, their net loss was $70 million. So it's, it's a good thing they raised the cash because it seems like they're going to need it if they're going to continue their pipeline as well as commercialization efforts for their drug LN144-145. So having said all that, let's look at the actual data that's come out in that time. For metastatic melanoma, they've done four different cohorts now. In August 2019, they were only at three, and cohort two was the latest one to see an update. And this is because it was their cryopreserved product. So them being able to show efficacy in cryopreserved tumor infiltrating lymphocytes is important because they're able to freeze those lymphocytes and not need to shuttle fresh cells around, which is a little bit more difficult. So what they saw at the time was an overall response rate of 38%, with 3% being complete responders. The stable disease rate was 42%, with an overall disease control rate of 80%. And then they also mentioned here that the median duration of response was not attained at 8.8 .8 months. And what that means is that at least half of patients haven't progressed on their disease at 8.8 .8 months after treatment. So that's all a good thing. The disease control rate is the sum of the overall response rate as well as the stable disease, meaning that there's still some disease control happening under the treatment of Iovance's therapy. Now since then we've seen an update in cohort 2 where the overall response rate is now 36.4%. Complete response is unchanged, but the stable disease has now gone up to 43.9%. So someone who was a partial responder has since moved to stable disease. And the disease control rate in that instance has not changed, but now the median duration of response was not attained, and it's been 18.7 months. So with all of this time, we're still seeing some kind of response in patients that were treated with this tumor-infiltrating lymphocyte therapy. The partial responder going to stable disease, it's unfortunate, but because it was only one patient, I don't think it's anything to really worry about. I think what's more important here is that they did a fourth cohort and this is interim data that's also a pivotal study. So this is going to be important data for the FDA to consider on whether or not to approve this drug for metastatic melanoma. And what they saw in a very short duration, so I don't think it's been that long, they saw an overall response rate of 32.4% with one complete responder and 21 partial responders and a disease control rate of 72%. So this is in line with the cohort 2 data because this is also a cryopreserved product. So I think seeing that data being reproduced from the cohort 2 study is very important. And if this continues, it seems like it's going to be no problem for them to get approval in metastatic melanoma, which justifies a big part of their valuation right now. 
Other data that they're looking at collecting is that of cervical cancer, and they presented data from that last year, but since then it's been unchanged, but we are expecting to see some pivotal data due in H2 of 2020. So keep that in mind. That's going to be an important catalyst because I think, and I'll talk about my model in a bit, but around $8 per share is contributed due to their potential in cervical cancer. So I'll talk about that in a second, but no updates from cervical cancer. And then an update that we did see is in a solid tumor, non-small cell lung cancer. And they presented this data at AACR in 2020. They looked at 12 patients, and of those that were previously treated with some kind of therapy, these are relapsed or refractory patients, they saw an objective response rate of 25%, three patients, and of those, two of them are complete responders and one of them is a partial responder. Those three responders were relapsed or refractory to monotherapy of Abdevo. I think that's what nivolumab is. It's an anti-PD-1 drug. So it's kind of interesting here because I believe the treatment regimen for, for these patients is a treatment of tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes as well as some kind of anti-PD-1. And it's interesting that these three responders were refractory to being treated with a monotherapy. And the reason for that is the tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes seem to boost the response. And it kind of makes sense because if PD-1 is preventing T-cells from attacking the tumor, treating the patient with more T-cells that are reactive to those tumor cells, plus a therapy that can mask the effects of PD-1 that would slow down the drug response, you can imagine that it makes sense that adding TILs to that will make it more effective. So that's really positive news that they're seeing this kind of response in a solid tumor. And in the next slide, I'm going to talk about the model because this is a huge patient population and it would you know, increase their sales pretty dramatically. They mentioned also here that the median duration of response was not reached, and that's a good sign. I don't know exactly the length of treatment in this trial, and they didn't mention that unfortunately, but it still means that of these 12 patients, more than half of them have not progressed on their disease. So this is the market potential that I see, and I have ANTS included this chart that I'm showing here on the right of all the incidents of different types of solid tumors. And this is all kind of the market that they're going after. So what I listed out in August of 2019 is that in metastatic melanoma, I estimated peak sales for second or third line of around $1 billion, leading to, at the time, $22 per share. In cervical cancer, I estimated peak sales to be around $350 million, leading to around $8 per share. So overall, I said the fair value of this company is around $3.5 billion. With a buffer, that would be like 28 to $35 per share. That was in a market cap based on the shares that were available in August 2019. So it was lower than now. But if we were to add in non-small cell lung cancer, there's an estimate that 30% of patients relapse after first-line therapy. And given that, that's still 68,000 patients that they could be treated with Iovance's tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes. So if they achieve only 15% market penetration, that could be a peak sales of around $2 billion, which would be another market cap boost of around 15 bucks per share. And this is all based off of my model that I've you know, made a lot of assumptions to, and also estimating that the cost per patient is going to be around $200,000. And that's a, a little bit on the low side. I think CAR-T retails for around $400,000 per patient, so we'll have to see how that all prices out. 
So the next catalyst to look forward to for iAvance, they're going to be filing their BLA in the second half of this year, and there's also going to be a readout for cervical cancer. So keep that on your radar. I think looking out for any updates on NSCLC is going to be huge because that indication alone could increase the potential price of iAvance by like double, I would say. I think estimating 15% market penetration is pretty low, so you can imagine that the market would react pretty positively to seeing a beneficial effect of TILs in NSCLC. So I'm going to be keeping my eye on that. The price is still around 31 bucks. I might look to add if it goes below 30 and kind of see how it goes from there. But I, uh, I still think iAvance, they're, uh, they're going to do pretty well if they can keep their spend under control. So I think I put in the earlier slide that their quarterly spend or quarterly loss was $70 million. So it's really a race for iAvance to get these indications onto the market before they run out of cash and need to raise more. So as an investor, you want to have them control their quarterly spend and also produce that data quickly so that you can see an increase in the stock price because if the spending gets out of control it's going to be diluted for the stock in the form of stock offerings and we've seen that with Bluebird and I'm gonna probably talk about Bluebird in the next coming videos because I think I'm well overdue a recap of what's going on with that company but anyway that's iAvance gonna move on now to a company called Cariofarm Therapeutics ticker symbol KPTI and they're a company that got on my radar late last year when they saw some positive data on multiple myeloma. And since then, I hadn't really taken a big interest. But given that I've been looking into cancer companies a little more frequently, I thought I would give them a quick rundown and uh, talk about them and their potential in the market. So they closed on Friday at $17.73 per share, giving them a market cap of $1.3 billion. Now, that's the undiluted number. The fully diluted number with all the shares is $1.5 billion market cap. The net cash that they have, which is according to them enough to fund them until mid-2022, is $320 million, And that's their current assets minus their current liabilities because they're going to have to pay off that stuff in the short term. The Q1 2020 net loss was $52.9 million. And that compares to $66.2 million in the Q1 of 2019. And their main asset is an XPO inhibitor called Selenexor, and it's been approved now for fifth line multiple myeloma. So after four lines, you can be treated with Selenexor, and the label reads as follows. So it's approved for patients who have received at least four prior therapies and whose disease is refractory to at least two proteasome inhibitors, at least two immunomodulatory agents, and an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. So very complicated label, but they are able to generate some sales. And we saw here, I have the sales numbers written below, that the first quarter after launch, they generated 12.8 million, then a nice increase in Q4 to 17.7 million, but then there was a decline in Q1 down to 16.1 million. And now the company says that the lower prescription numbers are due to COVID-19, and it's possible, I think it's kind of an excuse, but I can imagine that in March they probably saw a decrease in prescriptions due to people not going out as much, not being seen by the doctor. So before I talk more about the different therapies available, I wanted to touch quickly on what multiple myeloma is. And it's a progressive cancer of plasma cells. And plasma cells are a derivative of B cells. 
and they're very important for secreting antibodies. They're an integral part of the adaptive immune system. So if you think about the lymphocytic compartment of immune cells, they originate from the bone marrow. They kind of mature out of that in lymph nodes where they are processed in such a way where they can secrete antibodies to foreign antigens. And that's actually where the word antigen came from. It's an antibody generator. So what happens though is in order for them to attack in an adaptive way, plasma cells or B cells or T cells, they need to undergo what's called VDJ recombination, which is a rearrangement of genes within the nucleus such that they can produce a new form of a heavy or light chain for an antibody, or in the case of T cells, they do a TCR receptor. And in this way, those antibodies will then be reactive to whatever foreign antigen is in the body. Now, one of the negative consequences of this inherent genetic instability is that there can be deleterious forms of recombination that occur. And misarrangements that are pretty common in multiple myeloma is the misarrangement of the Ig immunoglobulin heavy chain and an oncogene. And what happens then is these cells become expansive, they can proliferate, and they also secrete a deleterious amount of antibodies. And what happens is that these antibodies can bind to normal healthy tissues mistakenly, and it leads to a pro-inflammatory environment such that you start to see the host immune system uh, attack these normal healthy tissues because they're covered in these malignant antibodies, we'll say. So what ends up happening is specifically for multiple myeloma, there seems to be negative effects on bone as well as kidneys, and that presents itself in specific symptoms. It's a pretty nasty disease, and it is slow growing in the beginning, but then after enough mutations accumulate in these specific B cells, uh, it can become aggressive and it needs to be intervened upon. The prevalence in the USA is 30,000 cases per year, and those that end up at fourth line or higher treatment is around 6,000 per year. So it's not a gigantic patient population, but they are patients that don't have many options left. So, you know, for that reason, it's good that they are able to use Carrier Farms drug here. Now, to get into the different treatments that are available for multiple myeloma, there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into how to treat any given multiple myeloma patient based off the patient's history, based off the doctor's experience. So keep that in mind as we talk about these. And it does kind of leave the door open for a doctor to use Selenex or maybe in a different combination earlier than fourth line. So I'm saying that from the outset because these are general guidelines and they're not hard and fast rules. The initial therapies that came on the scene for multiple myeloma were the immunomodulatory agents, and these are the thalidomides, and they've been approved for a number of years now, and there's some controversy around some of the first ones that came on the market, but some of the names of these compounds are Revlimid, POMAS, as well as Thalamid, and these drugs are actually what made Celgene such a big name in the cancer space. They commercialized all of these, as well as some others, for some other indications, but they're the major drugs of the thalidomide group. Now, another group of compounds that came on are the proteasome inhibitors, and these are the Velcades or the Ninlaros, and these are Takeda drugs, or Takeda subsidiary drugs, we'll say, and they've also been effective at first line or later in treating multiple myeloma. And then finally are the antibodies against CD38, 
and these are treated as second line or higher usually and one that I'm using as, a, as an example here is Darzalex and I believe this is a J&J &J drug but all of that is to say that there's multiple different routes that a doctor can go with treating multiple myeloma but it always starts with combinations of these kinds of drugs assuming the patient is of the right demographic. Now for our purposes the revenue that's generated by all these drugs is as follows. In 2019, Revlimid generated $11 billion, POMAS generated $2.5 billion, Velcade $1.6, and Darzalex $3 billion. These are all early line treatments, whereas Selenexor is only being treated at like fifth line, or maybe in combination with fourth line. But given there's only around 6,000 patients at that level, they're looking at maybe a max revenue of only around $500 million, and that's with full market penetration, which is unlikely. So in my model, I'm using $400 million, which is 80% of full market penetration, as the number that we're going to say that the drug is worth specifically for their multiple myeloma franchise. So other programs that are coming up, though, because they are commercializing this drug for other indications, and they're also doing new variations of Selenexor that have less side effects uh, for some of these. So we'll talk about that. But in the short term, they're looking at getting DLBCL approval for third line or higher. And this is in the form of a supplemental NDA. And the FDA is actually going to decide on that in like two weeks on June 23rd. That's the PDUFA date. And in their phase two data, they saw an overall response rate of 28.3% with 10.2% being complete responders. And these are in heavily pre-treated DLBCL patients without many other options. So I've talked about non-Hodgkin lymphoma before. And in these patients that are relapsed or refractory, there aren't a ton of options. And seeing an overall response rate of 28.3, I think is good. I would assume this is enough to get approval from the FDA. Now, in terms of how much contribution this would have to the company's value, with 9,000 patients per year in the third line or higher, I say it's another potential $500 million of yearly revenue if they penetrate the full market. And I don't think that that's likely. And for that reason, I'm considering 80% of that as a, a realistic contribution to market cap. So another $400 million there, I would say. I'm going to add all this up in the next slide, but I'm just kind of outlining my thought process here. Another indication they're looking at is something called dedifferentiated liposarcoma. It's a indication that I don't know very much about. I think it has to do with adipose tissue, but they're looking at treating this in third line or higher, and they're doing a phase three trial right now that is going to come out in H2 of 2020. And now this is a very rare cancer. It only happens in one out of 100,000 people, and of that, only 20% of them are dedifferentiated liposarcoma. So of the subset of liposarcoma, only 20% of them is what would be treated by Carrier Farm. With that, I estimate around 600 patients per year as the patient population that could be treated in the USA. And then the last one I want to mention is endometrial cancer, and they're looking for second line or higher, and they have phase 3 data that's going to come out in the early part of 2021. And now it was tough for me to find how many patients actually progressed to second line, but around 60,000 women per year are diagnosed. And of those, 25% of them are diagnosed with later stage disease, which means that they're less likely to respond to first line therapy. So given that, I'm kind of conservatively estimating that only 10% of patients will be treated with Selenexor of all the patients that are diagnosed with endometrial cancer. Having said all of that, the verdict that I have is that right now, Carry Farm is fairly valued. 
I know it's boring when I say that, but not every company is going to be a home run. The values that I use to come up with this number, I'm going to go through them and add them all up. But basically, the net cash that they have as of now is 320 million. Adding to that, 400 million for the multiple myeloma franchise, 400 million for the DLBCL franchise, 50 million for dedifferentiated liposarcoma, and then another 400 million for endometrial cancer. All of that is a sum of 1.57 billion, and their market cap today fully diluted is around 1.5. So for those reasons, I don't think it's worth taking a position today. I think if you're going to pick out any flaws of my model, which I'm sure there are many, this is just a model, it definitely has problems because it's made a lot of assumptions. The endometrial cancer one I think is the most likely to be off and probably more on the uh, conservative side. So I think there's probably more potential in endometrial cancer than I'm giving credit for here. But I think because it's the latest catalyst, I think my estimate here makes sense. So the important dates that we have to look forward to, the supplemental NDA for DLBCL is June 23rd. Keep an eye out for that. Late 2020 for the phase three liposarcoma data, and then early 2021 for endometrial cancer. Now, like iAvance, this company too is starting to spend a lot of money. I think their net loss was $52 million in Q1 of 2020. So it's a race for them to get that data, get those indications before they run out of cash. That's always the game that we're playing here when we're talking about biotech. By early 2021, they're going to have lowered their cash reserve to $170 million. And now who knows if that's actually accurate, whether or not their cash spend is going to increase or decrease. But that all has to play in your thought process when you're thinking about whether or not you want to take a position. One other thing I wanted to mention to this is that it's always a risk reward. And I'm saying right now that I don't think the risk reward is in the positive. And I'm saying that because I think that if, for instance, the FDA does not award the marketing approval for DLBCL, I think that the decline in the stock price would be much more significant than the increase would if they are granted that supplemental NDA. So I hope that concept makes sense, but I also feel the same way for the liposarcoma data. Now the endometrial cancer data, I think it would be worth taking a position for that, but I don't think it's worth buying today when I can wait up until late 2020 to see how everything shakes out with the company. So for that reason, I'm going to wait until the end of the year and consider taking a position before we see that update in endometrial cancer. And that's Carrier Farm. So this week, uh, not a lot going on, to be honest. I know the United States is falling apart with these riots, but for biotech specifically, there is Sarepta data coming out early on Monday, so it's probably too late for you to take a position, but they're going to be showing some limb girdle data that I know has a lot of people excited. So I'm going to keep an eye out for that. And then, yeah, like I mentioned, the USA continues to deal with some issues, and I'm not going to comment on it. I uh, This isn't a political podcast to any extent. I will just say, though, there's like three things going on right now in the U.S. that are critical for the next, say, 6 to 12 months. That is the return of COVID-19, the escalation of racial tensions in the country, and the 2020 election. And those could all fall one way or another, and they will have tremendous impacts on the market, I believe. So I'll leave it at that and do a quick portfolio wrap-up. Oh, that's not what I want. All right, so the moves I made in the last couple weeks, I bought 30 shares worth of TGTX, and the average came out to uh, 1862 And I might add to that, we'll see what kind of price I can get. 
I sold Cassava Sciences at $2.13 a share, took a big loss. I also sold my 30 shares in Marker, also took a big loss there, but thankfully I just had a small position in both because I knew there were tremendous risks associated with them. So overall we're looking at negative 9% for the year, and that is now trailing all of the indices. So everybody else has outdone me, and the market has rocketed higher. It's pretty amazing to see this V-shaped recovery pretty much complete. I think the NASDAQ got the V. The XBI definitely did their higher year-to-date, and the SPX 500, I think, is almost back to all-time highs. So it's anyone's guess where we're going to go. Volatility has gone down back to almost pre-COVID levels, um, but not quite. And yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm being kind of cautiously optimistic moving forward because, like I said, any of those three things that go wrong in this country, I think, could you know make us downfall again and see another big crash. But with that, I'm going to leave it there. So thanks again, everybody. I appreciate all the support. appreciate all the emails and all the interaction. So definitely tell a friend if they're interested in this kind of subject matter, and uh, we'll keep boosting those numbers up. So with that, I'm going to wrap. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.